The Sexual Assault Responder Network, number five. Educational, human-centered, and encouraging content that makes a difference. This is Module Online Training. It's the Sexual Assault Responder Network. I'm John Alexander. Today, we're continuing with our showcase series with a look at Minnesota's Saki progress. Just for reference, you usually hear us refer to victims and survivors of sexual assault as survivors. We've learned throughout our interviews and research that most Saki sites have their own preferences, and we'd like to recognize and respect that. Which is why you will hear us refer to both victims and survivors of sexual assault in this podcast today as victim survivors, which is Minnesota's preference. So, you know that the first step in an application for the Saki grant is creating an inventory of the site's backlogged sexual assault kits. You have to know how many kits are backlogged before you know how many resources you will need and before you know what changes you will have to implement. For Minnesota, auditing backlogged sexual assault kits started in 2015. And it was Duluth that, at that point, had the most unsubmitted kits. The state legislature was interested in finding out how many unsubmitted sexual assault kits lived either in police jurisdictions, hospitals, just in any places around the state. This is Mary Faulkner, Duluth's Saki site coordinator who works for Duluth's community-based sexual violence rape crisis center, PAVSA, which stands for Program for Aid to Victims of Sexual Assault. So when that audit was completed, they basically created a very basic kind of spreadsheet for departments to fill out and then to send back in so that the state would know kind of what they're looking at statewide. The results of that audit put the Duluth Police Department as having the most unsubmitted sexual assault kits in the state at 578. After auditing their kits, Duluth understood even before the results of the statewide count that they needed to take responsibility for the backlogged kits. They needed funding and resources and had to address their infrastructure. And with the help of the county attorney's office and PAVSA, the Duluth Police Department was the recipient of the initial round of funding in 2015. When the results of the statewide count were made public, Duluth already had a plan in motion. Soon after, PAVSA partnered with the Minnesota Coalition Against Sexual Assault Minkaza for short, to share resources and assistance. Fellow practitioners at Minkaza who provided training and technical assistance, and we were working closely with them on how to address the backlog of sexual assault kits from an advocacy standpoint. Uh, and we were also working closely with our state crime lab, the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, on the issue of the unsubmitted sexual assault kits. So I think it seemed like a natural transition then in I think in both 2017 and in 2018, they looked into getting their own award to work statewide. I think there was just a very organic and kind of natural transition that I think once they saw kind of our local success with having this funds, it made sense to try for it statewide. Involving Saki in ending a site's backlog means that they're really reforming their entire sexual assault investigation system. The most important question to ask here is, Why were kits not tested in the past? Why the backlog? This seems like an easy and straightforward question, but the answer is complex. Besides bureaucratic reasons, for Minnesota, three main points stood out. Number one, consent-based cases. Here is Samuel Schmidt, 
the Saki project specialist at Minkaza. Some of these kids had cases that were considered consent-based cases. This is what law enforcement is telling us, right? That these are cases where there's no outward, you know, evidence of force or coercion. The individual is reporting non-consensual contact um, and assault and a, a known suspect, right, um, from that victim survivor's narrative is claiming it's consensual. And there is a number of kits that were not tested because they were considered consent-based cases, right? Or there was a known consensual partner subsequently before or after the assault. Some of these kits didn't get tested because it was difficult to investigate for them, right? They said, well, why would we want to invest our time and money and consent-based cases? They're not cut and dry. But the majority of our victims and survivors are never going to be perfect victims. There's no such thing as a perfect assault. But these systems are created around the belief that there's a really defensible victim, right? That there's this ultimate victim that looks a certain way and has a certain story or that it's a stranger assault. The majority of our cases are known assaults, right? Or these kind of messy, complicated stories. And so these systems actually are not set up for those kinds of complexity. And so we've had to challenge our partners to say, well, we still need to test these kits. You know, we can learn a lot by testing them. The second issue was a lack of trauma-informed and victim-centered training in law enforcement, especially with earlier kids. There was clear lack of belief in the victim-survivor, or if a victim-survivor was quote-unquote difficult for any kind of reason, like somebody who didn't have a stable housing situation or a known address, or was under the influence of alcohol or drugs at the time, or struggled with a, a chemical dependency issue, um, those are all difficult situations to follow up. And the lack of effort on those cases is very clear because those are not those perfect victims, right? We have systems that are completely not made for multiple populations, particularly marginalized populations, and they tend to get the least amount of effort. Mary Faulkner also saw issues in staffing and workload in Duluth. And then we also identified a number of capacity issues where investigators had very high caseloads and new cases kind of coming in each day and not a lot of systems to help them manage those cases in a way that kind of gave each one an adequate amount of attention. So a lot of the work that we're trying to do is kind of help determine kind of what is a good size caseload for any individual investigator and making sure that we're staffed up to a capacity to appropriately handle cases that are reported. These staffing issues are very common, especially in smaller or rural precincts. It also turned out that it's not always easy to stay in touch with survivors. Another issue that we've seen, and I think this is something that is is difficult even today, is some victim survivors just have a lot of instability in their lives, and so it can be difficult to stay in touch with them over time. And so if sexual assault kits aren't sent in early in the investigation when that contact still is in place, if a month or two passes and an investigator isn't hearing from a victim survivor, they may then opt not to send the, the sexual assault kit in. And I think we see similar issues on the advocacy side where our community-based advocates can also have difficulty staying in touch with victim survivors over the life of a case. So we're also looking at different ways of, you know, how, do, how can we in really supportive ways keep victim survivors engaged? Do we need to 
assist them in having more stable phone numbers? Or are there other kind of instabilities in their life where if we connect them with the right services, like maybe housing services or mental health services or substance use services, will that make it more likely that they may decide to stay involved with law enforcement through the process? Because sexual assault investigations are really time consuming. They're kind of a marathon, not a sprint. So it often requires the victim survivor willingly staying engaged with law enforcement over the course of months. So what is the solution for these issues in Minnesota? What is the best approach to avoid kits getting backlogged in the future? And what support system can we build around victim survivors so that their cases get the attention they deserve? Here's Sam. That's where the protocol and training comes in, right? So we have a team of working on three sets of protocol. One is the investigative protocol. What are detectives supposed to do? What are their expectations and what are the recommendations for not doing harm to victim survivors moving forward? Then there's recommendations and best practices for advocates. Ideally, they should be working together, but they're separate documents. And then there's a recommendation that we're going to publish as well about how to build a multidisciplinary team in your community so that those stakeholders are working together. A good example for this is Duluth. They were the first Saki site in Minnesota to tackle the prevention of future backlogs. Here's Mary. One of the most important things that we did, there was this department-wide policy that said all sexual assault kits must be submitted within 30 days. And so the department did a good job early on of saying, we don't want to create a backlog while we are addressing the backlog. So we saw a lot more regular submission of sexual assault kits. So just a simple policy saying that we are going to submit them and we're going to submit them within this time period um, was really helpful. And since then, there have been some changes to statewide statute to make sure that sexual assault kits are being submitted in a timely manner. We were also having asks of our community-based advocates to say, is there a way to be more regular about follow-up and to, to work to stay engaged? And this is a repeating theme we see across Saki sites. The realization that one agency cannot do this job alone. There needs to be a multidisciplinary approach to sexual assault cases. Smaller multidisciplinary teams, or MDTs, across different jurisdictions bring the best results and support to individual victims for a comprehensive response. Additionally, Minnesota needed a statewide task force of numerous stakeholders that would coordinate their outreach through a core multidisciplinary team led by Minkaza. After testing and trying on different collaborations and team members, the Minnesota MDT settled on a core team. But the need for assistance was still there. Here's Sam. So instead of having these really big MDTs where all these people are meeting, we, we had the core MDT still meet, um, but then we started offering monthly office hours. So in addition to the MDT, so we could come to MDTs if they wanted to, but we started offering monthly office hours for training and technical assistance. People could drop in for two hours and just come in and say, like, what do I do with this form? And then the BCA would be there, literally, to tell them what to do. Or there would be detectives saying, I don't know what to do with this, this, and this. What are your recommendations? So people could get that live training. And then, of course, we're working on our protocol development, which will be part of that distribution process. Then we'll, we'll pair that with training. Minnesota understood that training was an important factor in, one, preventing future backlogs, and two, creating a trauma-informed, victim-centered response, which is why they launched a survey to assess training needs in the state. 
We started the survey in May and it went through August. And so we sent it to all of MinCasa's known contacts, all the CLEOs, which are, you know, basically commanders and chiefs um, in every district and every department in the state of Minnesota, as many as possible. And it's tell us what your profession is, what region are you in, um, characterize what you think are the biggest barriers regarding sexual assault kit testing, investigation, storage, etc. And what would you like us to train you on? What what skills do you need to address these barriers? So not only are we able to get information about what they perceive to be the problem on the ground, but then we can say, hey, look at all of these problems on an aggregate scale. We can see patterns that maybe they can't. So a lot of it was quantitative information, but with some of it was qualitative. We were getting literal excerpts. This is the problem. This is what we're seeing at this agency. Hospitals don't agree with us or whatever. So this survey data is giving us a ton of information about where in the region we should be training what are the relationships that they're experiencing like in that region and how do they prefer to be trained? The Sexual Assault Kit Initiative values training and has prepared valuable training resources which are available online in the Saki Virtual Academy and the Toolkit. Locally, Duluth's Mary Faulkner says a crash course in DNA evidence and the meaning of DNA evidence in a case really helped them make the connection for CODIS eligibility. And then I would say the second piece is we did a lot of work on trauma and trauma-informed interviewing and understanding trauma for victim survivors. What we learned, and I think what it was really important for investigators to hear, is that you know victims might display behaviors that seem like they're being evasive or seem like they're being uncooperative. But if you misread those, it'll make it difficult to build rapport with that victim survivor. And really, some of those things are not someone being evasive or not someone being uncooperative, but really them processing the trauma of being sexually assaulted. And I think that was a light bulb moment. That's really important for victim survivors because in a lot of ways, they're trying really hard to explain what happened. And when they can't because the trauma has affected their memory, they might feel like they're kind of failing, you know, they're failing to convey um, this important information. But the reality is they don't have any control over that. Ultimately, Minnesota's goal is and always will be the empowerment of the victim survivors. We've talked a lot about how the system works to empower the victim survivor and how the system in this country has to do better to prevent future backlogs and to do right by the victim survivor. But the reality is that victim survivors need to be in the center of it all. Cleaning up backlog kits is important. However, it also means contacting victim survivors of sexual assault who may have not heard a word about their case in many years. In our podcast, we like to report about all the Saki success stories, and there are many to report on. This is only the beginning, and change takes time. Minnesota knows they are a long way from claiming this project a success. Mary Faulkner puts it best. I think in general, people feel good that that this is getting attention and that we have the appropriate resources to address it. I think it's a complicated issue. And so sometimes I worry that we haven't always been proactive enough in explaining kind of all of the ways in which we're trying to address it. And I will say, I think there is some lingering distrust of the police, but I do think that is warranted. I think it's on us to work to rebuild that trust. So I think it's that mix of letting people know that, um, you know, we've been good stewards of this funding and we've made significant process, 
but also not wanting them to think that we're we're done quite yet and that we know that there's a lot of work to do and there's a lot more kind of reform pieces that we want to put in place. And success can be measured in different ways. And even a small success should be celebrated. Here's Sam Schmidt. I am thinking about the everyday kind of work that we do to make these systems more accessible, less harmful to the people who've been assaulted, right? And something that I'm super proud of is the work that our detective and advocate are doing right now at Anoka and setting a standard for how law enforcement and advocates should be working together. Success also means getting input from everybody, not just the people directly involved, such as law enforcement, medical personnel, and advocates, but input from the public as well, folks that are actually affected by the system. We have asked uh, folks from multiple different positions, um, having very different stakes in the game, to come and look at this and give their comments. We're asking folks of color, folks with intellectual and developmental disabilities to give us feedback. So there is some community input on the work as well. In terms of like the big S's, the systems, you know, successes, our project recently had a CODIS match that connected to a case outside the state. And that suspect was already serving, serving some time. That's a really great success that we tested the kit. We did the notification that was sensitive. We honored and respected and asked that victim survivor what they wanted to do. And then all our systems partners worked together to make that charge happen. We asked Sam what they would like to share with Saki sites that are just starting out. Here's what they said. You don't know what you don't know when you start out with Saki. You're always going to sort of discover something you're not prepared for. And that's really okay. Um, you and your partners can absolutely be resourceful. Um, the issue of accumulation of kits or the quote-unquote backlog of kits is a human-made problem, and it is within our ability to affect positive change if everyone is willing to participate. But not all of us are going to do it perfectly, and sometimes we're going to do it imperfectly, but we're going to learn from that process. So if everybody's in that spirit, I think we can solve this issue. Mary Faulkner's recommendation for other sites who are just starting out is this. Think about um, successes other than prosecutions and what those look like. So, um, you know, is there a way to see success as getting more victim survivors to access, you know, supportive services? So we've had some victim survivors who haven't wanted a criminal justice outcome for their case, but they wanted to get involved in our therapy program. And so we made sure they got a referral to one of our therapists or, you know, maybe they wanted just some victim reparations um, for some expenses that came out as a result of their sexual assault. So then we can connect them with, you know, our victim witness partners at the county attorney's office. So I think sometimes it's important to make sure you are identifying those outcomes and kind of seeing them also as successes because they are things that wouldn't have happened unless you undertook this project. Minnesota's progress is impressive, and they are far from done. One thing is palpable. Many passionate minds have come together to change how Minnesota approaches sexual assaults. The end goal is clear, giving power back to victim survivors. We've added some resources to the podcast description. If you would like to showcase your state's or jurisdiction Saki efforts on our podcast, please email us at sarn at module.com. That's S-A-R-N at M-O-D-J-U-L dot com. We will see you back here next time. Highlighting efforts and improvements of sexual assault training, evidence kit tracking, 
and best practices across the country. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. It's available anywhere you can get podcasts. My name is John Alexander. Thank you.